In the ongoing quest to find balance and renewed health, veterans and active military members have often been at the forefront of these conversations. We've recently partnered with Veterans for Healing to share veteran stories of what's worked for them as they've navigated the depth of trauma they experienced in combat. These stories and the information discussed are not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek your trusted physician or other qualified health provider's advice with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. For more information on today's episode, visit htcpod.com slash stories of healing. Well, Jack, you've accomplished so much and you're involved in so many various mental health organizations and just different things and initiatives. Why mental health? Where does your story really start? Um, so my story starts actually from childhood where, uh, I was diagnosed with, uh, ADHD and, you know, was sort of labeled at a young age as having a learning disability. And, uh, that was really hard as a, a young boy. And I was also, you know, raised vegetarian in Saskatchewan. So, uh, um, I already had sort of a lot of adversity from, you know, when I was young and trying to overcome a lot of labels and, uh, my father has, uh, was sick, uh, for all my, all my life pretty well. Yeah. My dad had uh, hydrocephalus and, uh, when I was in grade seven, he had a seizure. Um, after a surgery, had an infection, and the paramedics actually and fire department came and they picked them up. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a paramedic. And since he had, you know, I watched him really struggle with uh, mental health, with his illness, with everything. It uh, it was from a young age, I've always been a huge advocate of it. So, and then at 15 years old, my mom started taking me to meditation retreats. And uh, I started meditating, started doing silent meditation retreats at a young age, and uh, already had quite a few coping tools um, from a young age, which I sort of forgot about during a lot of my paramedic career. And uh, a lot of my journey has been rediscovering a lot of gifts that were given to me, um, you know, from my from my mom and from just uh, different circumstances. Yeah, I guess at age 21, I became a paramedic a primary care paramedic and I worked in um, a pretty northern reserve called Pelican Narrows and uh, within three months I uh, had my first major trauma where I actually had a baby uh, pass away on me in the back of the ambulance and was pretty early in my career and uh, yeah then within a month of that had another loss of a young lady who um, passed away in front of me so a lot of that was sort of secondary, though, to the sanctuary trauma that I experienced within the culture of being a paramedic. So thinking that a lot of people, you know, supported me and thinking that the organi- organization I worked for would uh, be more supportive and, um, you know, more uh, understanding of those sort of things. And I found that not to be true. So I balled it up and kept it on the inside for quite a while um well not quite a while it was like three years <laughs> that's a long time to keep stuff in yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so it was like I I silently sort of struggled and I put on that front I bought into the culture or the cult whichever way you want to look at it 
<laughs> and um, I essentially, uh, while I was in advanced care paramedic school, which is the top level paramedic in Saskatchewan, so that's another additional two years, I wrote an essay on post-traumatic stress disorder, then I found out that I had it. <laughs> so I was having... Hold on. So you wrote the paper and as you're writing, you're realizing this is me. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. That must've been a mind. I mean, yeah, that must've been crazy. <laughs> I don't know. Trying to be yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Like I was <laughs> writing this and then getting triggered as I was writing it and then like really struggling in my scenarios and in my schooling. And I'm like, man, what is going on? Like I usually am able to push through this and, and put my head down and, uh, then I got flown out. Uh, I won the scholarship and I got flown out to Toronto and saw a lot of the presentations, met some other people who were quite involved in uh, the charity and advocacy and mental health. And that was back mm-hmm. in 2013. Then by 2014, I did my first conference for PTSD awareness and in Saskatchewan, which is part of the organization I worked for at the time. And uh, shortly after that, uh, we had... One of the first ones that I was aware of, paramedics take their own life. Mm. And I realized I had to do more. So I actually quit my job and I went tree planting and I was homeless for a year. I traveled Asia um, out of a backpack and put all my stuff in storage, went to India um, first off and took my yoga teacher training. Yes. And as I was taking my yoga teacher training, I started to uh, shift from that fight or flight that I'd been in for so long. Wow. That, uh, yeah, yeah, I started to like the eat, pray, love thing, but from the masculine perspective. Yeah, I want to hear about that trip. Was was the purpose to just kind of get out and find yourself in a way? So the interesting thing about uh, when I reflect back on it. Um, you know, in Walter Mitty, when he like takes that call yes. to adventure, I literally was thinking about that and I was like, I'm not going to bring it back up. I'm not going to do it, <laughs> but yes, I, yes, it sounds like your life to be honest. <laughs> uh, so in Walter Mitty, he goes on what's called the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, was sort of popularized by Joseph Campbell and it's in all the different mythology around the world. So it's, uh, found in all the tribal stories. And Hollywood has sort of used that as a template for, you know, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, um, Walter Mitty. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, essentially what I did without realizing it is I went on my own hero's journey and answered the call to adventure. Uh, so I started out by tree planting and I found a lot of therapy just being out in nature and, you know, just putting trees in the ground 10 hours a day of really hard labor. And uh, from there, you know, went, went to India for a month and then went over to Thailand, Cambodia. And while I was in Cambodia, I didn't realize this, but the whole nation had been through a genocide. Mm. And I started to actually look at how other cultures heal from trauma. So I started approaching a lot of my um, travels with that lens of, Wow, a lot of people, not just people in the West, but people all over have been through trauma, yet they learn how to live with it and they learn how to be resilient and build that character. So I started, um, you know, just going by the seat of my pants and 
every country would lead me to the next. Uh, I think after that, I went back to India for a month. Yeah, I went back for a month and actually lived. I lived with uh, monks in um, northern India for uh, two or three weeks. There. Uh, what was that like? It was incredible. I actually knew a monk from like back in twenty. 2007 who I live I stayed with them for a little bit and actually very serendipitously reconnected with them and uh he was in India at the time and uh uh he actually was the follower of uh Radnath Swami who is the uh guru of Russell Brand okay Kyle just read the book oh cool yeah I love Russell Brand I think he's just so fascinating yeah so um Strangely enough, he had actually just left the Trues, which is his uh, sort of uh, thing he was doing on YouTube for a while. And uh, he had been in India like three months or two months before I got there. And everyone, all the monks had met him. And I was sort of like traveling a lot of the same places that he, he went, which is cool. And I got to spend time with uh, his guru, uh, uh, Radnath Swami. And he was just an incredible light in my life at that time. So it was like... It's pretty transformational. What were some lessons you learned from him? Compassion. Mm. Authenticity. And how to be humble and how to treat people. So I had dysentery. So I sort of got deli belly. Oh, God. And I was just sort of at a table and like trying to fight through it. And I was like. I'll be fine. And I wasn't really a mission. I just remember him coming up to me and just like putting his hand on my shoulder and looking at me and just being like, are you okay? And just like getting lost in that, like, you know, eternal presence. It was just like, wow, this guy is like, has some really a lot of power to him. You know how, cause, cause I've seen um, documentaries and stuff and they have gurus in the documentaries and all these people are like, you feel something bigger around them it's just something they give off is, is that something you experienced as well oh yeah wow. big time and I couldn't describe it and it was just like it just felt like the aura the, the energy surrounding certain people is like very healing mm -hmm. just sort of being around someone who's do done a lot of inner work a lot of shadow work and stuff uh, it was just uh, quite a remarkable experience mm -hmm. so then I went back to, where did I go after that? Bali. So I went to Bali and I uh, spent like, I think a month there. And yeah. Are you just trusting yourself that this is going to all work out the whole time? Because <laughs> I'm over here like, how did you like get from point A to point B yeah. to C to D? I mean, you were all over the place. Yeah, I know. I was, uh, <laughs> you know, I was like, I really didn't want to be like go off work and be labeled again like I had as a child you know mm. like I got labeled with learning disability ADHD you know like felt very useless uh and like I couldn't learn or be resilient so I always had a chip on my shoulder and I didn't want to like go in the western medical system and just like basically be put on a bunch of medications that disconnected me further from my feelings and my mm. emotions because I felt like that was a lot of the root and I just uh I felt like this is just like a Hail Mary. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like what do you have to lose? lose? Yeah. Know? Wow. I was like, you know what? Like this or you know just be broken, a broken human and I didn't 
feel like I wanted to just, you know, go off work and, you know, do counseling once a week, I full immersion for me. So in Bali, I actually came across um, a bike accident while I was in Ubud. So uh, some lady like fell off or like got hit by uh, a vehicle while she was on her scooter. And I actually went like snapped right back into paramedic mode. Were you able to help? Yeah, she was like, it was kind of a weird story. Yeah, so she in a crystal like sort of gem shop and like all these like sort of, you know, middle-aged white women were like surrounding her with like essential oils and like smudge. And I'm like, what's going on over here? And I was just finishing my yoga class and I was just like, you know, walking around and I like see a broken bike and I'm like, oh, that's weird. And then I look over and I see this woman like obviously concussed, like help me and like on all fours. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I was like, does she need some help? And they're like, no, we... No, no, we got this. The sage has it. No worries. Yeah. And I was like, ah, it looks like she needs some help. Like, looks like she's in pain. And they're like, oh, no, I said we got it. And I'm like, well, I'm a paramedic. Then they're like, oh, the angel sent oh, you. Oh, okay. Like, she does need help. Yeah, she needs you. <laughs> Come on over. to Divine intervention. And I'm just like, no, I was literally just walking around the corner. And I guess, yeah, sure. If you... <laughs> if you want to say that sure like right place right time yeah 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 sure you know so I got her to the clinic and I'll get her stabilized and you know send her off by ambulance to get a, a CT scan and turns out she had a fractured back and they wanted to like discharge her but I was like oh, I, I don't know I think it's probably a good idea for you know her to uh you know go to the hospital yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah like uh so yeah turned out she Yes. So then I actually, the people that like were intervening initially invited me to uh, teach yoga at their women's retreat. I'm like, sure. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think I'd actually use this yoga teacher training thing. So I ended up like teaching like a three or four day yoga retreat. I was their yoga teacher and uh, it was actually pretty cool. Um, That is amazing that your life fell into play that way. Yeah. And, uh, and then I like, yeah. So from there I was like, wow, this is actually pretty cool. Maybe I'll go a little bit deeper into this. And then I got, um, uh, invited to go to like a manifesting your dreams in reality, into reality workshop. And in Bali, in Bali. Yeah. And then in that, um, in that workshop, uh, it just like in a flash, it came to me that I wanted to open a retreat center for, first responders, paramedics, and people recovering from trauma. And it was just like a super like crazy flash of like me in a log home with my wife and baby and, you know, running at this retreat center. And it was, um, and it's kind of crazy because yeah, like now I live in a log home in the forest and I have a baby and like I have a really beautiful wife and uh, now I've sort of, you know, transitioned into you know, doing some retreats and stuff. So it's sort of uh, from that retreat, like, or that uh, workshop, like, you know, five, six years ago, I've sort of, it's sort of materialized in a way. So you literally Mm -hmm. manifested your dream. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I didn't really think much of it at the time. But now that I'm thinking of it, yeah, I I guess I did. (laughs) So 10 out of 10 (laughs) will recommend that workshop. Yeah, yeah. So then from there, I went to the Philippines um and then japan 
and then I uh, went to Hong Kong and then I went home for another season of tree planting. I have so many questions. <laughs> My mind's exploding. <laughs> so do you find, I've, I've been to Asia a couple of times. I, I went um, to the Philippines and to Bali as well. Actually, I think it's, I think it, I mean, I haven't been to too many other places way overseas, but I think that's one of the most beautiful places on earth. Um, do you find that the, the way people treat each other over there is different than over here? Big time. Yeah. They're more collectivists. Yeah. I find they like just the sort of underlying um, values of a lot of their culture mm-hmm. um, are more deep rooted than in North America. Mm-hmm. So I find um, they really look out for one another. They are really hardworking, more humble people. And uh, I found in Bali in particular, their connection to yeah. Hinduism was pretty cool. Like they're even in India, like the, the overall belief in karma, like, you know, the, like that whole saying, like you're meant to meet someone and all that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things sort of the stars align or, you know, that's just like assumed over there. Mm-hmm. So then I would like just start playing into that a little bit. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just like, well, maybe I am supposed to meet you. Yeah. And then it turned mm-hmm. out, you know, maybe I was. And then I just started believing in myself. And I just started like, you know, using my whole trip as unplanned as possible. Mm-hmm. And just sort of going with my intuition and my gut and uh, found a lot of healing um, from that. And then I re-entered the profession as a flight paramedic in uh, Stony Rapids. So that's uh, near Northwest Territory. So way, way up north, it's a, a three hour flight. And I was working two weeks in, four weeks out. So during that time, I was traveling still. So I went to uh, Mongolia. I went to Taiwan, to Myanmar. Um, I think I've been to about 23 countries now. Wow. And picked up different things along the way. So uh, um, in Mongolia, I had the idea that I could have yurts at the retreat center. And that would be sort of like, you know, a cool way for people to like get back and it's a circular structure. So uh, we just uh, got our first one, um, 17 foot yurt insulated wood burning stove. I just got that a couple weeks ago. So So cool. That is awesome. I've seen yurts on Airbnb and I I like mark them. I heart them because I'm like, one day I will stay in a yurt. (laughs) And I love the word. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a great word. Yeah. So so like yurts are a very special thing to me. Like my wife and I went tree planting. Mm. Um, so I met my wife and she had some trauma and stuff. And we, instead of trauma bonding um, and focusing on, you know, the things that made us feel broken, we focused more on the things that have made us feel like, you know, healed and, yeah. and focus on resilience. So, so I actually took her tree planting with me and I built a yurt for her oh. or we built it together. <laughs> and we, we we stayed in it for the whole uh spring season and it was like sort of makeshift but it had like a wood-burning stove and I like started to feel bad when it was like really cold and everyone was like shivering in their tents and like had like you know a barrel like <laughs> like homeless people have where they're all like warming up and I'm like have this like smoke billowing out of my ear <laughs> and I'm in my castle all good here <laughs> yeah so I was like this is yeah this is kind of like I don't know I feel felt a little bit weird because I was there by choice and stuff and uh but 
yeah, yurts have been on the radar for quite a while. Can you explain, like, is, is tree planting literally you just get a bunch of seeds and you go plant seed the trees? Or Yeah, what does the day look like or a season yeah. look like when you're doing that? So it's actually really competitive. You wouldn't think so. <laughs> I would have never okay. guessed that. <laughs> this is so yeah, cool. Like, I know nothing about this. <sighs> yeah, you live in a, you basically live in a tent for like two to three months, usually two months. And Four you years. get these seeds. Or yurt, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you get these seedlings, which are like, you know, uh, probably like, you know, six inches long. And you shove as shove as many as you can, like in these side bags that go around your waist and you have like shoulder straps. Mm -hmm. And you stab a shovel in the ground and you try to, you know, get good soil. And then you just put them in the ground and make sure they're upright and that uh, the plug isn't damaged. And you do that for 10 hours a day and you have to make sure they're spaced and everything and you get paid based on the amount of trees that you plant so a good amount of trees would be like you know two to three thousand a day oh and it's about 11 cents a tree so yeah it's like 11 11 and a half cents a tree and sometimes you'd like barely be able to plant like a thousand because the ground is so bad so it'll just be like rocky and like you have to slam your shovel in a bunch of different places before you find a good home for them. But uh, my second season, um, I actually planted 4,121 day because I had the perfect <laughs> land. Every The stars aligned and I just like decided just to see how much I could push myself. And that's pretty typical in a tree planting world because you want to like use that competition and that drive to like make the most money. Yeah. But I, but I was like sort of out there for fun, but I was like also like, yeah, the money's nice, you know, like <laughs> filling my bank account and stuff. And yeah. that's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, that would be like probably $500 for that day. Wow. And is it on a specific plot of land or like a tree farm? Yeah, it's like a cut block. So these like forestry companies will like clear cut a bunch of forests mm -hmm. and they have to like contract tree planting companies to replenish what they've cut so it's sort of depressing actually just like seeing all this dead forest bet, yeah and you're just like you know in this like destruction where animals used to live and there used to be like a the habitat and stuff and it's you know you do that for 10 hours a day and just like the energy of a cut block all that destruction starts to uh, get to you and stuff so mm -hmm. um I, I sort of romanticized it but you know, I wanted to take the good things from it, not sort of yeah. the not so good stuff. And I used it as a tool for my healing. What about it felt felt healing? Like, was it the re repetitiveness or just that? Yeah, it was like a mantra. Um, I don't know if either of you are into yoga, but it's like a mantra. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I would actually do mantras in my head while I was tree planning. So it's just the repetitiveness, the catharsis. And once you like... Uh, I found that once I was able to like just find a catharsis, then I started processing my memories and my traumas. And my brain literally would like go into these traumas in high definition, not in like a triggered way, but like in a very healing yeah. mm -hmm. way. And I'd be able to look at them differently and really like pick apart the value from them, not necessarily the 
you know, the parts of those situations that wounded me or I felt had wounded me, I was able to look at them in a different light. So I found that really helpful. Did you, did you take any of that um, spontaneity and kind of just trusting that, you know, things are happening the way they're supposed to? Is that kind of ingrained in you now? Or was that kind of hard to maintain once you came back to Western living? It was very hard. I thought I was better. My trauma or PTSD, or I call it trauma fatigue, um, and my colleague came up with. What is and, what um, was the word? I found that it was really hard to actually find out who I was now. Mm. Uh, trauma fatigue. Trauma fatigue. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so trauma fatigue, a term that um, my colleague and I, Dwayne Broughton, he's uh, the one that sort of is a co-owner of. Uh, our uh, retreat that we're working on out here in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like trauma fatigue, as opposed to post-traumatic stress disorder, which seems like it hides the humanity of what people are going through in like jargon. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it adds to the stigma and it adds to, uh, you know, when you call something a disorder, it's sort of like, I don't know it just sort of it it creates uh sort of stigma to and resistance to people wanting to get that label and wanting to reach out like it limits you I feel like it does but uh, I think any any sort of diagnosis I feel like uh you know it's good to find out answers it's good to have sort of be able to compartmentalize what you're going through but I feel like um it doesn't have to be a life sentence That's that's my belief, um, because for me, like I when I reentered the profession after you know my first trip, I got re-traumatized. I attended a plane crash with uh, 26 people on it in Fond du Lac, Saskatchewan, and it was really hard to live in that spontaneous spontaneous way, um, live with my intuition and make sense of why that would happen to me. Mm-hmm. when I was like man I've been through a lot you know like <laughs> why can't these things just sort of ease up you know yeah like, get a break <laughs> yeah yeah like give me a break <laughs> and like <laughs> so after that I actually you know I, I explored western modalities so I did something called uh, accelerated resolution therapy <laughs> shortly after that trauma and that involves uh, EMDR so yeah. eye movement rapid desensitization yeah or desensitization reprocessing I think um so it involves that and it actually helped change the neural pathway uh surrounding some of the triggers that I experienced on that plane crash so I used that therapist and I I really trust trusted the process and that you know that not one tool fits every job Mm -hmm. and I was able to use um, conventional Western medicine along with uh, sort of Eastern philosophy, along with plant medicines, along with uh, being out in nature um, to really bring me back to my center. Mm -hmm. What was the protocol after you witnessed something traumatizing like the plane crash or the young deaths that you saw in the beginning? To, to get back to work 
Yeah, I didn't really have one. I just kept working. I asked for time off and that was denied. And, yeah. you know, it, so, yeah, like I just, there isn't one. Uh, people There's not support, yeah. Well, they, they sort of wanted to set me up with a, a priest, you know, and I didn't really want to do that. So that might have been the protocol. Uh, I consider myself more Buddhist than anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you know, I sort of had a debrief, I guess, with like one of the guys who had been around for quite a while, but he sort of like just went into his traumas and I felt like I was supporting him. <laughs> and I was like, I just went through something and I'm like 21 years old and like, you know, crying uncontrollably, having night tears and like not knowing what's happening to me. And I'm like, okay, not bringing that up again. Like, yeah. So yeah. just pushed it further down. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I like, I actually am not a huge fan of critical incident stress debriefing in the conventional sense where you go around in a circle and everyone shares their collective traumas and grief. Mm -hmm. And that can actually, I think, add to vicarious trauma. Yeah. And I, yeah, I feel like that's feedback we get a lot when people talk about that. Yeah. yeah. And we're still sort of stuck in that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Has that changed at all? The, the protocol? Is there any more support for people or first responders that do feel traumatized by what they've been seeing? No. Wow. I'm I'm working on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> give me time. Uh, give me time. <laughs> yeah, man on a mission. Yeah, like I've been working on this and speaking up about this uh, in articles in the newspaper and for like since 2013, 2014. And now people are actually starting to like make note of it with a lot mm -hmm. of the suicides that are getting some attention. The pretty public, uh, you know, first responders uh, who have taken their own lives as a result of their injury mm -hmm. and disease I'd say mm -hmm. um so I believe that they're actually contributing to the trauma by uh not having someone sort of qualified well I don't know if qualified is the right term but like just you know going around in a circle and having everyone sort of share their emotions when that wasn't previously in the culture it's sort of like it feels forced yeah and it feels very AA -ish. yeah <laughs> yeah 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 very AA-ish. yeah so I'm not really a huge fan of like the a style I mean a is focused on the recovery and abstinence from you know alcohol or in mm. narcotics narcotics anonymous it's uh abstinence from narcotics but you know when when it's a trauma which is like pretty fresh and complex and everyone's triggered differently and triggered by different things you know, if you see someone struggling in that circle, it's like, I like feel for them. I'm like, man, I just want to like, give you a hug or tell you how I feel too. And yeah. like, you know, really be there for them. But that's sort of like people, if they break down or emotional, then they might feel that vulnerability hangover and feel embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's sort of like sharing our collective guilt and sharing those feelings of sort of like, it's like trauma bonding. That's what it is. Trauma bonding. So it's more trauma bonding instead of like focusing on the proactive steps that we can take to uh, like build each other up. Mm -hmm. And I think the essence of peer support should be more in the social aspect, making sure people don't uh, become reclusive. They don't become introverted. They don't uh, disconnect from their friends and family. I think like check-ins are really important and 
that's that's something I'm a huge advocate for. And I don't think that we should be having a lot of people who are currently wounded and going through the trauma, taking on other people's trauma. Yeah, the responsibility. They can't. It doesn't seem very healthy. Yeah. No, it's um I always say like, you know, hurt people hurt people, healed people heal people. Oh. Mm. Uh, so there's this sort of term that was coined uh I think uh in the 80s uh called Florence Nightingale syndrome and that's uh Florence Nightingale is the one who actually created the rounds like doing rounds and check-ins on your patients mm. and I think she was like a single lady and she like dedicated her whole life to you know the nursing profession and that's sort of glorified and I also feel like this sort of self-sacrificial like almost like a masochism, like taking pleasure and being burnt out and being wounded and injured is sort of glorified in our profession. Mm, yeah. I don't even think so, just your profession, yeah. the, the culture in general, I think right now. Yeah. It's very trendy Absolutely. to say like, oh, I'm so burnt out. I'm just so busy, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So then it like creates this weird culture where it's like if someone does heal and is vulnerable and open like I am, it's sort of like looked down upon. It's like, People don't know how to take you, you know, people who are open like Fabian and I and really honest about uh, our struggles. It's sort of, you know, people like, well, you're not supposed to be like that. <laughs> what are you hiding? <laughs> yeah. What are you hiding? There's something going on. Something's like, going on. Yeah. Yeah. It is. But, so how did you and Fabian meet? How did you get involved with GAF? Because, because now you're the director of Western operations. That t- Explain that to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm actually the president now. Oh um, my gosh, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, so, no, that's okay. That That's just a recent uh, transition. Because um, Fabian has taken this uh, uh, Veterans House side, which is the charity side. Mm. So we, we're sort of, uh, you know, I'm working the nonprofit side and working with the partners and uh, really trying to move forward with some strategic planning. But yeah, that happened. Let's see, my... My wife's uh, auntie um, is married to a doctor who is connected to uh, Fabian through some business dealings. Mm-hmm. And we we're at, I think like her, uh, we were at a wedding and then a funeral shortly after. So I started talking to this uncle of hers. Um, and then her auntie was sort of like, you have to connect them to Fabian. It sounds like, you know, they're, they're like totally hit it off and they have a lot of the same ideas. And uh, so then eventually, you know, uh, he connected us and we were talking for man over a year. Um, I, I was really trying to, you know, I had just moved into my place and really, you know, still working in the profession actively. Mm-hmm. and you know and that's a hard thing to do uh when you're in remission from your trauma because you can come out of that uh fairly easily if you don't take care of yourself mm-hmm. so you know throughout that year we had uh we had talked quite a bit and emailed back and forth he asked me to send in my my story of healing to mm-hmm. him and I was just like one day I just like I just typed it all out in an email and it was like I don't know really what came out, but it was just like it came through my sort of channeled through my fingertips into the email. And then that led to some 
you know, some, some phone calls and some messaging back and forth. And then finally, um, uh, he invited my wife and I to go out there uh, to New Brunswick. So we flew out there, I think in 2018. Okay. And then we were doing, yeah, December 2018, I think it was. And then we were doing an interview. Um, he was just like, hey, uh, I just want to talk to these news people really quick. <laughs> and then like, I was like, oh, sure. And then like on the interview, he was like, Oh yeah, and Jack's just joining the team, and he's gonna be um, <laughs> director of Western operations. And I was like, I am. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's such a Fabian thing. I love it. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, and that was like our first night really meeting each other, and I was like, holy crap, like this is pretty wild. <laughs> this is happening. And, yeah, and then um, two weeks later, he, him, and Julianne flew out to. Um, my wife and my acreage retreat center mm-hmm. and we actually hosted a, a mini retreat for them mm-hmm. so awesome. we had a, a medicine man come out and uh, do a sweat lodge and uh, we did some nature therapy we I think I had horses at the time no I didn't have horse horses at that time but um, we did lots of hiking and um, and it was just a really cool experience to be able to uh, share that with, uh, you know, Fabian and Julianne. And, yeah. you know, they got to really, we really got to know each other. Um, yeah, I would think you would bond through through that for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was his first sweat lodge. So that was pretty cool being able to share that with him. And for those that don't know it, can you kind of paint a picture of what the sweat lodge experience is yeah. like? Well, actually, that's a big missing piece, which I haven't really gone into. So this would be the perfect opportunity. Um, so after all my travels, after everything I had went through, I, I still felt this missing piece. Mm-hmm. And when I got that job in Stony Rapids, that's a Dene um, uh, reserve. So mm-hmm. um, I started approaching the First Nations cultures as if I was traveling a new country. So I started learning the language. Um, I started learning the cultural beliefs and traditions around healing and the ceremonies. And that led me to, you know, working in Larange, which is, uh, I'm just north of there. And that's about 80% First Nations, 20% Caucasian. They have about six reserves around, uh, you know, this particular community and that's Woodland Cree. and I actually apprenticed under a medicine man as an escapios for about three years. And uh, the sweat lodge is representative of the womb of the mother earth. So it's made out of uh, willow and it's covered with blankets and tarps and different things to create a circular dome structure. And the idea behind it is that when you enter, you're actually entering into the womb of mother earth and you come out reborn. And the rocks that are um, used in the sweat lodge are representative of the, the grandfathers, you know, because they've been, the rock has a spirit and they've been here since, you know, the beginning of time. So when you give your traumas, you give your, what you're going through and your prayers to those rocks and um, they take those traumas on and you're able to leave what you came in there to pray with. You're able to leave some of that grief, some of that trauma, some of that pain in the sweat lodge and let it go up with the steam 
So in a sweat lodge, there's four rounds, and each round has a particular thing that uh, you know you're working on, and it depends on which style uh, lodge you go to, whether it's Lakota, Nakota, Woodland Cree, or you know there's a there's Dene sweats. Um, but the one I was learning from, you know, the fourth round was the healing round. That's the last round for you, you know, come out of the sweat lodge and become reborn. And the the scene is that, you know, within the sweat lodge, you know, things happen which we're not meant to speak about really, but there's there's lots of songs, there's lots of uh there's lots of healing that ha- happens. There's mm-hmm. you know different different medicines that are used to to help uh with clearing, to help with uh uh healing and uh what they call doctoring so when someone comes in there then they get doctored by the lodge keeper and usually the lodge keeper has an escapios which was what i was acting as and they'll have other pipe carriers so they'll carry the the sacred pipe with them and uh and that sort of the tobacco spirit is uh the first medicine that was gifted to the people as uh as a gift and that's meant to be a portal you know, so that uh, that is sort of what you'd offer if you're calling a sweat. So if you're to approach a lodge keeper and want a sweat lodge or to be doctored or healed or, you know, if you're to pick medicines and you'd offer tobacco. And um, the the pipe is actually misinterpreted a lot to mean the peace pipe, but it's actually mm-hmm. the truth pipe. So it's a pipe of truth. So when you connect to the tobacco spirit, uh, you have to live a life of truth. And if you're a pipe carrier, then you have to live by certain morals. You can't drink, you can't do drugs, you can't um, disrespect women, you have to have integrity, you have to follow the the red road, which is the road of uh, integrity, the path of sobriety, the path of, you know, honor and courage. And there's a whole bunch of different teachings around that. So um, to bring Fabian into that, you know, and to be able to use the local culture and, and you know, tap into in a respectful way some of their ways of healing from trauma, that was a pretty incredible experience for me to be able mm-hmm. to share. Very vulnerable, very, very vulnerable. What was it like to be apprentice to a medicine man? So in the First Nations teachings, the the lesson comes first, and then the teaching comes after. <laughs> okay. So in the conventional system, it's like the teaching comes first, and then you get the lesson. Like you mm-hmm. do your, you get you go to school, you go get the the teaching, and then you get the homework after. Mm-hmm. So it's much more passive. So it's like you'd be cutting wood or gathering stones, or you'd be actively doing something and then sort of the you would you know do something with uh uh you you'd forget to you if you go absent-minded or you you make a mistake then you know you'd basically get the the teaching would come after they allow you to you know slip up or fall um and that's sort of called the principle of non-interference so they actually are quite accepting a lot of the ones I've worked with are very very accepting of people making mistakes they're very you know they uh they allow you to you know learn and grow 
in a very natural way, which works for my learning style really well. Mm-hmm. So, and every, every teaching in the First Nations way that I know of and in my experience is the oral tradition. So it's passed down orally, it's not written, it's not sort of passed down. Um, it, everything has protocol. So every, everything has, uh, if you want to learn a song, then you have to present uh, broadcloth and tobacco and a gift. And then that song is actually transmitted to you. So you have to, you know, you can't just go on YouTube and uh, <laughs> type it in and learn it. <laughs> yeah, type it in and yeah. Sing along, yeah, does, Shazam. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Just Shazam it, yeah. It sounds so, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just very, very traditional, very, very, like, I don't know what word I'm trying to think of. It's, it sounds beautiful. Yeah. Very encompassing. It is. it is. And the really sad part, you know, is that a lot of these folks have, a lot of the, the, the ways of the lodge and a lot of these different teachings have been lost um, through colonization. Mm. um so people who do practice these ways on on the reserve are often the black sheep because they're outlawed for so long and the church has such a strong influence still to this day on the on the different reserves so um it's uh it's been really difficult to navigate that even from my own perspective as uh someone who's caucasian and learning these things and who's benefited from from that you know there's a lot of guilt and a lot of uh you know fear of appropriation and the cancel culture and stuff like that but you know when you're when you're sick and you're struggling you do what's necessary to get better and you leave your ego at the door you leave fear of judgment and you just you know you you have to go by your experience and so far my experience is that if you approach it with integrity and with good intentions and you know, you actually want to learn the ways and these different things and not, uh, you know, just like take little bits and pieces and, and sort of make it your own and try to monetize it. If you do it with like a good heart, if you do it with a good heart, then, you know, everyone that I've spoken to is really, has been really receptive to that. Mm-hmm. All these knowledge keepers, all these lodge keepers, uh, everyone has been just great. So how is that translating into what you're doing with GAF? those practices that's actually it's allowed me a way to like find something that uh like a path I I feel like I've sort of found my path because Mm -hmm. you know with yoga I sort of uh I I practice it for quite a while and then you know I ran into some some different things you know like the Bikram thing and like a few you know like a lot of like the dark side of yoga a lot of the ego egotistical sides of it which just sort of like turned me off and I was like it's sort of like I found like a spiritual one-upmanship um (laughs) very present within you know the the yoga meditation like the western view of that Mm. so I was like I was like really turned off by that that's a weird thing to navigate I would think yeah 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 it was really strange so it was like it sort of seemed like a lot of exhibitionism yeah um we're in the first nations teachings and uh the traditional ways there's not show and tell you know it's sort of like it's an experiential thing it's uh and you're there for your healing you're there for your prayers you're there for for those you're praying for or um uh so so it's a very private thing and i think i i felt like a lot of my journey has been very public 
especially being interviewed for a lot of the the suicides that have happened in the past uh, several years in Saskatchewan. And um, I've really made my voice pretty, like, you know, within the public eye, I guess you could say. So having something where I could, you know, use to heal myself um, allowed me to be a voice, a strong voice um, for GAF mm -hmm. and uh, has allowed me to really step into my strength and uh, try to be a voice for others who uh, feel like they've lost theirs. Yeah. For those that aren't familiar with the pillars that GAF um, puts into place for, for people that come to them, can you talk a little bit about those? Absolutely. So the first pillar is sort of, um, you know, traditionally we're looking at uh, sort of uh, triaging people or finding people the right medicine. So that would be like... Uh, symptom reduction, or uh, in the veterans case, you know, medical cannabis is a really good start mm -hmm. for people. So, you know, starting them on uh, high quality medical cannabis is uh, often really helpful for people like medically discharged from the forces. So a veteran in the Veteran Affairs Canada perspective would be RCMP or military. Mm -hmm. However, we found that first responders, um, they, you know, like it's, it's, it's very difficult for a first responder to, especially like, uh, you know, law enforcement or corrections to, you know, use medical cannabis still with all the stigma, even though it's legalized, you know, it's, it's difficult for them to use that without that guilt, without that shame, without that fear of judgment from their colleagues. So mm -hmm. it's essentially that first pillar has been turned into sort of a triage point, connecting people to the right, um, the right service, the right therapist, the right medicine. So that's basically a stabilizing point. And uh, the next one is actually root cause. So the root cause would be using EMDR, neurofeedback, um, trying to regulate the biological uh system and mm -hmm. get to the root of the psychological uh injury that has occurred whether it's cumulative whether it's incident specific um and working out some of the triggers so the third step being natural healing modalities so that'd be where like the equine therapy, the nature hikes, the retreats, you know, more of the residential component would come in. So mm -hmm. what, when Fabian created GAF, you know, the first two pillars were covered by Veterans Affairs. Um, they're okay. still not covered. They're still not covered by Workers' Compensation Board. Um, so that'd be first responders. Uh, so a lot of first responders are having to pay out of pocket if they want medical cannabis. Um, if they want therapy, we're sort of capped at like $500 or something and a bit of massage with their benefits. So it's like, wow. really, I don't, I don't think like five sessions is really gonna, you know, <laughs> yeah, poof, you're healed, takes a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah, so it's kind of crazy. It's like, you know, you're basically like, you know, forcing people to go on workers compensation board, which is an insurance company, you know, mm -hmm. to to basically like leave your profession sometimes risking permanently and risking future opportunities for 
uh, you know, promotion, risking judgment from your colleagues. So you have to like go pretty far. Like people are like pretty broken, just barely holding on because they don't want to have to, you know, go off work and put themselves through that. So there's a lot of working wounded in first responders. Like, you know, at least with veterans, you know, they have the opportunity to like, you know, you have your pension covered, you, you have, uh, you know, 90% of uh, what you're paid and the regular forces that's covered sort of as a result of your injury, where we're still working on that in the first responder world. So Fabian had created this third pillar because Veterans Affairs didn't actually cover retreats. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he was like, hey, this is something that has helped me that I want to share with my tribe, with all the people I've served with, and that's him giving back, right? Yeah. And I sort of had that same idea through, you know, doing uh, my yoga teacher training, my my meditation as a youth, and then you know, keeping that uh, meditation practice, uh, you know, throughout uh, my healing journey on and off, but, you know, uh, so, you know, creating an immersive experience, just like I did with my travel, just like Fabian did when he uh, started hosting these retreats, I think is a huge component. And then the fourth pillar is reshaping purpose. So here in Saskatchewan, we have a program called Hemp for Heroes, mm-hmm. where we're actually putting people back to work by hand planting, hand harvesting hemp and, you know, creating different products from that, whether it's biodiesel, which is, you know, you can uh, run tractors off of, you can run vehicles off of, you can run diesel generators off of, you can make hemp lumber, you can make hemp creek, you can, um, you can extract the oil, extract the seeds as a superfood. So we're just doing a small five acre plot this uh this spring so we're planting Mm -hmm. it in about a week so we're doing a five acre test plot and then we're gonna have some hopefully some first responders and maybe some veterans come out and help with the hand harvesting of it and what can you not make out of hemp you know (laughs) to be honest (laughs) oh exactly yeah i know it's like hemp is awesome it'll like save the world you can make electricity out of it you know you Mm -hmm. can uh burn the biomass and uh you know, generate your own electricity. It's like, it's such like a diverse, incredible thing. And it's such a crazy process to actually have a hemp farm. Like we have to do a health Canada application and, you know, there's basically get audited every year just to have hemp on our land. And it's like, not even psychoactive. Yeah. You have to have like 1%, less than 1% THC in the hemp product to, to be considered hemp. So it's, uh, quite strange but yeah the hemp or the the fourth pillar would be like you know if someone wanted to start their own business like a veteran or first responder after they've been through this healing process that's like the giving back and if you sort of look at the hero's journey it's in that circular format and they always sort of return home after they've been on their journey and they want to give back and uh that sort of uh follows um that same hero's journey, you know, from that call to adventure to the trials and tribulations to the abyss, and then coming back from the abyss and and conquering that dragon, that demon, that that trigger, you come back and you you have something to offer now. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of depicted often as a treasure, 
or it's uh, depicted as a, you know, a gift or, or something, something beyond yourself. And that's where a lot of people can become shepherds. They can help others along the way. They can open their own retreat center. They can uh, basically do, yeah, what, what Tyson's doing and, uh, and Picto, uh, creating a safe space for people to come and, and, uh, you know, volunteer and have a incredible time and, you know, help land helicopters in a field, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, he was excited about that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, li- I listened to it this morning and I was oh, like, wow, you? that's just awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it is really beautiful what you guys are doing. I mean, it's clear that this needs to be talked about, but not only that, like you're making actual moves and starting a movement to support and change these people's lives. And I just think it's incredible. Oh, thank you. That's great. I second what she said. (laughs) Yeah. And I find that, I find that uh, sharing our own stories of healing and our own like journeys. um, My hope is that me being sort of uh, using my voice uh, and sharing what I've been through and some of the things that that have helped uh, heal my trauma will give people some courage to do the same. Does that feel even further healing to you to, to be able to share and, and see what comes of it in a positive way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I had no idea what I was going to talk about this, uh, this interview. And <laughs> I didn't know whether I was going to get into, um, uh, yeah, some of, uh, the plant medicines of I've used to heal myself or, uh, the yoga, the meditation, the, the sweat lodge indigenous ways. It was, uh, yeah, pretty much an open book. So, yeah well thank you for sharing with us jack this was yeah really wonderful thank you um okay well i guess we'll wrap up here Mm -hmm. (laughs) just so you can get back to saving lives and doing what you do um thank you just thank you so much and we will be sure to be in touch as soon as we get this episode pulled together (laughs) yeah absolutely where can people find you jack are you on social media or um yes yeah i have a linkedin profile i still have to sort of update it um but you can follow me on instagram renny jack and uh gaff house um you know we have a website on that with my bio and you know people can reach out to me uh on facebook or instagram just in my dms and uh would be happy to you know help support people in being connected to some, some of our services and some of the ones that uh, I personally would recommend in Western Canada and then Fabian more for Eastern Canada. So. Well, great. Beautiful. Keep up the good work. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much, Jack. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we invite you to come be a part of the HDC community. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching at Have the Combo. For information on all of our shows, guests, and more, visit htcpod.com. While you're there, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Talk soon.